I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to a, uh, another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Um, excited to have our, our guest. We have uh, Blaze Avast, which is probably one of the coolest names of all time. And we'll get to where that came from, Blaze. And Blaze has the distinct, I guess, privilege or, you know, it's a unique situation. The first time that me and Blaze are meeting is literally right now. So uh, we, sure. we have a mutual friend. Uh, who put us together and said, you guys will have a great time on, on camera together. So we said, okay, we trust him. Let's, let, let's make it happen. So Blaze is, uh, is currently the managing director at the Linen Cupboard uh, Laundry, which we'll, we'll talk about, Blaze. You were the executive director of Al Fadger uh, Properties and then VP of Operations uh, Type Media. And then you have a, a dual bachelor's degree in industrial engineering and manufacturing engineering at Northwestern University. So Blaze, once again, thank you for, uh, for taking the time and, uh, and joining me. No, thank you for having me. Appreciate that gracious intro. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we, we were just jumping into it, and I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa let's turn let's turn the recording on and let's actually have this conversation live." <laughs> so there's nothing pre-rehearsed. So, so let's start at the beginning. I mean, you know, you you, you had mentioned to me that you were born in India but spent most of your life um, in the Middle East. How did that all happen? Right. So where did it all start? It started back in the '60s when my father, who grew up in an extremely, extremely impoverished household, had to find his way out of India at that time. There were no jobs. There was no real future for people who were uneducated. The government was still obviously trying to figure itself out from 100 years of, 100 plus years of uh, colonial rule. We can thank the British for that. And they brought, and, and the discovery of oil had sort of opened up a lot of opportunities in the Middle East, right? So. My father ended up coming out to Bahrain, where in 1962, and then in 64, his brother, his older brother said, come out to Dubai. You know, there's opportunities there as well. So my father jumped on a barge. That was a, it was a support floating, like it was more like a, a, a raft with a bunch of su supplies on it and floated his way to Dubai, uh, climbed up the port, walked around, ended up living in a church and helping them set up the first church. So we're Catholic by 500 years of uh, <laughs> having the Jesus beaten into us. And then years later, he would get married uh, to my mother. And that was an arranged marriage. And then she ended up coming out. And that took us into like 1971. And he ended up working for a British company, which doesn't exist, a construction company that ended up getting a lot of government contracts. So they ended up building the first skyscraper in the Middle East, which was the World Trade Center in Dubai. Wow. Then the first hospital, which was the Rashid Hospital, which is still in existence till, till today. And then many other landmark monuments. And my father moved on to build his first steel, start his own steel fabrication workshop, which is still in operation till today. So I was conceived, I'm one of three children, I'm the youngest. I have a brother and a sister. And I was conceived in Dubai, but delivered <laughs> in India merely because there was not enough professional healthcare at mm. the time that my mother even trusted to say, let's, it was basically the hospitals were there only for 
those who couldn't afford to go elsewhere. That's so interesting now that Dubai is what it is today. Yeah, right? <laughs> so we have some great stories and great footage as well, right? Old photos, etc. And then, you know, as time progressed, the city grew, the country grew. It was a very small town, what, 50,000 people, and slowly maybe became, I couldn't keep track of the count, but as we got older in 1994 is when we first got cable television. Imagine, I hadn't watched MTV in my life till that time. How great it was to see that and how connected we suddenly felt with the rest of the world and pop culture. And at the same time, the United Arab Emirates only formed in 1971. So you can imagine it had no identity. It's still, it's still trying to figure itself out. But yet it became a melange of culture, right? We have so many people from so many different countries speaking so many different languages, which is why anyone who grows up in Dubai or in the, in the United Arab Emirates or grew up there, we have a knack for languages, all of us. Mm-hmm. We can just pick up language very easily, which has also led to a lot of helping me be successful in my life. Because How many I'm, languages do you speak? So I speak English, I speak French. I mean, I'm not going to pretend like I'm an expert in all these languages. English is like by far my best language. And I grew up in an English speaking household. But and I went to an English British curriculum school, but like French, Arabic, Hindi, and then a native dialect at home as well. So all these languages help me not just purely from a communication standpoint, but language is just a tool for you to learn about culture. So it has helped us break those boundaries and immerse ourselves into various cultures simultaneously, right? So assimilation in a business world is easy too, because when you're sitting across the table with different people from different places, it's easy to find common ground. And that, you know, in 1994, going back there, when I graduated high school, there were no universities in the Middle East. It was a question of, well, where do you go after this, right? It's like you've reached the end of the internet. (laughs) So not that the internet was created back then, but from there, the done thing was if you could afford it and if you were smart enough, you applied to go to the university in either Europe or the US. And for the rest of those who couldn't, they would go back to their native countries, which in this case would be India or for all practical purposes, even South Africa for that matter even though I don't think there were any South Africans in in the United Arab Emirates in the 90s, to be frank. And at the time, if you can imagine, there was no airlines. We all flew British Airways. We only flew via Europe. We never flew direct anywhere unless it was a short haul flight. So even like the concept of going somewhere on a vacation, I mean, if you must know, my family didn't go on vacation for a a decade at one point. (laughs) We just couldn't get there. It was just too laborious for us, right? I ended up applying to go to schools in the United States because my brother and sister did. I don't think, I just followed blindly, I guess, but I didn't go to the schools. They they went to UPenn. I went to Northwestern. And And was was education always something that was instilled in you early on? And and, and why why was that? I mean, were your parents well-educated? No, and that's a very good uh, kid. My mother was. My mother was was an educated woman. She was a math teacher. My father is, uh, you know... You did a podcast with uh, who is it? Someone Bayless. Yeah, uh, Frank. I was. Yeah, I was. I was listening to that earlier this morning, and I was like, and he said something about there's no such thing as a self-made man, and I, I must correct him on this one point. My father is a self-made man, and I'll tell you why because he started his own business without 
a loan from anybody. He used his own money on that meager salary that he was on. He was uneducated. He taught himself to read and write English. Till today, to date, he has the best cursive handwriting in English in our entire household. It's like art. I ask him to write Christmas cards because my handwriting is not as good as his. So, and I've been put it through a proper educational system. Where did that resourcefulness come from? I mean, does he come from a, a lineage of, of smart of people, creative, <laughs> entrepreneurial, smart people? I think so. I think so. His brother uh, apparently is a, uh, his older brother has passed away, but his, he claims his older brother was a genius. He was ambidextrous. He would write ex- exams using his left hand and his right hand, sometimes at the same time, stuff like that. I don't know how far it was true, but he also like, he likes to paint. I mean, and these are things like, I think today I still learning so much about him. And I have to say, I don't know where his drive to learn came from. I know my mother was a more traditional learner. Like she went through a system that schooled her. My father was a high school dropout. He couldn't finish because they were so poor that they didn't have time to study because he had to toil the fields. But well, we're going to talk about nature versus nurture yeah. at some yeah. point. I want to, because I don't, I don't know what you think of it. So it's going to be interesting yeah. to hear your opinion. But let's continue the story because I want everyone to kind of get some context around what you do now. Right. We've got to get there. Right. So you land up at Northwestern. That's right. Um, you know, how, how much of a, I guess, I was going to ask you how much of a culture shock that was, but I guess, uh, you know, you said anyone who grew up in the, uh, UAE was pretty good at adapting to different cultures. So was it uh, was it as much of a shock as you thought it would be, or, or was it? Was well, it I will simple? say this: I was, I was. Uh, my poor brother, he, for example, he came to the United States for the first time, straight to college, never been there before. Right? I had the luxury of going to visit him one time when I was about fifteen or sixteen. I can't remember. So when I came to the States, I kind of had an idea of what to expect when I got what, 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 you, you had one week of a holiday or something? <laughs> I came for, I actually went there, I came for a month and we did all the, the, the you know, the stuff that my brother could do. He too was a college student. I mean, imagine taking me around, but uh, I can't drink. I didn't have a, <laughs> I didn't have a fake ID. Like I was, I was a dead weight to him. So when I came, I came to Chicago. I've never seen snow in my entire life. I didn't know what cold meant. And that part blew me away. Yeah. I was completely ill-equipped to imagine what the Windy City had to offer. And also, when I came to Northwestern, you see, UPenn was a very international school, but Northwestern was not. I was the only international student from the Middle East for the entire freshman class. Wow. Yeah, for that hey, well, Would that still hold true today? I, I no, view Northwestern no, as a pretty international It is now, school. but... I think they've learned from their mistakes. It's still very, the middle school of journalism, which is part of Northwestern, has opened in Doha, in Qatar, because they're training them. They want a training center for their Al Jazeera news network that is quite a popular news network. So now they have exposure. They understand, wow, there's a lot of people who know about us and want to come and study. But back in the 90s, no. (laughs) So that was a challenge, explaining to people who I was, where I was from. They were like, wait, but you're from the Middle East, but you're not Arab, you're Indian. And then you have a French name and you're Roman Catholic and you speak English as well as we do in some cases, even better. <laughs> I want to actually, I want to question you on this because one of the first things you, when, when you got introduced literally five minutes before this podcast started, you said, I'm from India, but 
I'm not Indian. I have no real connection to yeah. Indian culture. You know, then you, now you're talking about being part of UAE, but being Indian and being Catholic, like have yeah. you always viewed yourself as to some degree an outsider? Yes, always. And it also, I think it comes from my inability to communicate with the people in India. And I think language is what defines how immersed you are in your heritage. And my parents did a, I'm so sorry to say this, a terrible job of keeping us connected to Indian culture. They believed that to be educated meant you spoke English. To be educated, they didn't, you know, they didn't see any value in that. And plus, I guess you have to remember, if you were uh, converted by the missionaries in India, whenever that happened, education meant the book. So it was all about the Bible and these kinds of things. So my, my parents, when for them growing up, they were like, being educated doesn't necessarily mean we have to bring culture into the, into the mix. It just means you have to know everything about Sunday school and, and how to speak English and how to sing church hymns and things like that. So you can imagine the identity crisis <laughs> that followed <laughs> where... We're being told, no, you're from India because UAE doesn't naturalize people. So they were like, if you're not Arab, if you don't have Arab roots, if you're not Muslim, you don't speak Arabic and you haven't been here for five generations, you're not one of us. Mm -hmm. But yet, look at my father. He's been there before the country was formed. <laughs> he knows no other home now. And yet he's still considered an Indian. It's really funny. I, I like asking about this, this idea of being an outsider because I definitely see a pattern of kind of that outsider mentality in a lot of entrepreneurs that I meet. It's the, yeah. And maybe it's maybe it's not cultural. It could be their mind works differently and right. they view the world through a different lens and they feel less connected to some degree because or, or disenfranchised with like being told that this is the way to build your career. You go and work for the ex bank and then you move here, here, right. here, and just move up the ladder. And for me, I've always viewed myself as an outsider for a number of reasons. Yeah. You know, we have, I have the, the, the traditional Jewish guilt, which is uh, you know, <laughs> always a, a, a part of it. It can be oh, worse yeah. than Catholic guilt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I'm an immigrant from South Africa. Right. Um, I, you know, I still distinctly remember, uh, you know, when I first came here being made fun of for my accent. And I quickly learned to lose it. Right. Oh, I wish I didn't. It's I, lo I love the South African accent. No, it's the best. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> Are you rationate? <laughs> anything different when you're that when you when you're a young kid is, is different, right? right. So, but I also think that getting comfortable with that outsider mentality allows you to you know double down on on that being a strength and, and not conforming to the normal way of thinking, the normal way of doing business, the barriers that people put on themselves and in their minds to you're so right. prevent them from from accomplishing what they what they can accomplish. You see things differently. It's just, you just see things differently. That's all I can say. Yeah. Uh, whereas other people see challenges, you see opportunities. So, yeah. uh, you know, but you're right. We've been treated like outsiders all our lives over there. And that's, that's a shame. I think the United Arab Emirates is learning now that their biggest asset are the people there, all people, not just their people. And, you know, that'll take time. But in the meantime, I was fortunate enough to not only graduate from Northwestern with a double major, but I managed to find, get an interview. I got a few interviews, but I managed to get hired at, at KPMG. And while, while most people would, you know, a lot of my friends 
who graduated, they would do like a year or two if they could, if they even got hired in the US and then would go back to run their family businesses. But for me, that was kind of not in the cards. Why? A, my brother was running the bit. My, my brother had moved back and he was running the family business. And I wanted to, to live and work in America. I just felt like I would learn so much more being there than going back. And the fact that the opportunities that were presented to me, I, you can't say no to that. You know, I mean, when I got hired at KPMG, I didn't even interview with them. That's the honest truth. I went out one evening for a beer with a, my, one of my best friends who was a year ahead of me, and he had started working at KPMG. And he said, come out for a beer, meet my boss. I met his boss, and we had a great conversation. And he said, if you're, whenever you graduate, send me your resume. And I thought he was kidding. A few months later, after I graduated, my buddy said to me, he's like, send Rob your resume. And I did. And three days later, I got an offer letter. <laughs> and I said, this is a gift. I cannot say no. <laughs> Let's see. And was that goes. still in the U.S.? Because now you're in Toronto. How, how, how did you get to Toronto? So that's a great question. So I say, so after Chicago, I got hired at KPMG. I moved to New York and I was traveling. I was working in the IT. Well, the department was called ICE, Information Communication Entertainment. But we were doing systems, building systems conversions for uh, all the big telcos. So in other words, Southwestern Bell out of Dallas had started acquiring a company called Cellular One, and they were building out their mobile, the mobile network, and they were converting into a unified single platform, which is when I started to learn Hebrew. <laughs> and you will say, why Hebrew? Because the company that was supplying the software is a very, very famous Israeli company called Amdocs. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. I've heard of them. I heard the name. Yeah, they are a, a, a behemoth. They, in fact, own a stake in South African in South African Telecom or South Africa Telecom. They own a stake in many telecom companies because they have their billing systems in there as well. So we were the systems integrator, and by virtue of that, I was on the phone with Ranana, which is the development suburb <laughs> in, in outside Tel Aviv, uh, like all, all the time. So I, I have a lot of straight from Israel, a lot of Israeli contacts, colleagues, and many great stories from them as well. So I did that for about 10 years. And in that time, I got burnt out. The travel was incessant, spent more time on a plane than I did at home, had around a 1.5 million miles on across, if I consolidated across two or three airlines, and I was only 26. So you imagine, <laughs> it was George Clooney up in the air, you know, that, that, that film. I knew I couldn't sustain it forever. It was just taking its toll on me. So I decided I was going to quit. I stopped the green card process as well. I said 9-11 happened. It was time for a change. My parents had, had uh, applied for, to emigrate to Canada. I was still a minor when they had applied for that. So it had come through and they were like, why don't you consider moving to Canada? I said, you know what? It's only an eight hour drive from New York. <laughs> I piled everything in the truck, drove across the border with my papers and uh, decided that that was what I was going to do. I was going to take some time out, recalibrate, figure out what I was going to do. And what, what year was that? That was 2004, 2005, somewhere around there, or maybe 
I lie. I think it was 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. But I had, I was doing a project at Bell Mobility. Amdocs was doing a, a huge systems conversion for Bell. So Bell's mobile platform is all Amdocs. So we were here for about two years integrating here out of Mississauga. So I was flying LaGuardia Pearson every week, every week. So I was like, you know, I could, I could see myself living here. This is a good country, good city. Why not? And I felt, you know, I just wanted, I, I needed a change. But I realized that a change didn't mean just moving. It also meant changing what I do. I know what you do now. I think it's going to be an interesting transition to this discussion when people now hear what you do because it's yeah. vastly different. Yes, <laughs> yes, tremendously. I then jumped into an online video production company called Type Media. We made a film that actually ended up going to the Toronto Film Festival. It was a documentary. It was a very sad story about a woman who was gang raped in Pakistan as a punishment for a crime that her brother was suspected of committing. It was a story picked up by CNN and we decided to document her journey from the time CNN picked up the story. That partnership didn't work out very well for me. And I ended up walking away from that company, learning a lot that in business, the first thing you need to suss out in partnerships are the people in those partnerships. Forget about the idea. And um, I learned a lot from that. What did you miss in that partnership? I mean, did you just um, get carried, I, I, you I, carried I, away with the passion of the project and didn't look at the people? Yeah, I did. I was so excited about getting into something that to me sounded so sexy at the time. You have to remember, we were starting up online video production. It sounded so crazy back then. That's what Netflix does now. That's what mm -hmm. Amazon Movies does now. And we here we were, we had seen that YouTube had just launched and we were like, oh my God, here's this platform where you can upload video and it's all trash and people are watching it. What if we actually made good content? What if we actually made good content and put it on a platform like YouTube? Mm -hmm. But YouTube couldn't handle more than four minute videos back then. We had to come up with a platform to host our own long format. So that's how it started. And we had these great ideas, but the partnership had folks who were all about self-promotion. The director was hungry for credit and wanted to take his career forward. And I don't, I don't blame him, but I don't blame the people who, who went the way, the direction they've gone. But at the time, what they wanted didn't align with what the company needed. And that was where it fell apart. And then from there, I, I ended up bouncing to Dubai <laughs> in 2007. I did a trip to Israel as well. My best friend at KPMG had joined the State Department, road trip from Jordan, did a lot of fun stuff there, came back. And lo and behold, by virtue of growing up in Dubai, you know people, your friends, your best friends have all grown up. Well, one of my best friends happened to be one of the sheikhs. You know, he's from, he's a very, very senior, close to the, the ruler of Dubai, right? So he calls me and he says, I've got a problem. What are you doing? I said, I'm packing my bags and moving back to Toronto. And I said, my online video deal didn't work out and I'm looking for other stuff. He ended up saying, stay a while, help me out. I've got a property development company and it's all going sideways. I need people I can trust. You're one of my oldest and closest friends. Stay for three months. 
<laughs> three months turned into two and a half years. Uh, in the meantime, Lehman Brothers crashed. Mind you, I have no background in property development or construction. We built five commercial towers of 38 stories each in 13 months consecutively. We broke ground in, in, in November of 2008. You do the, you piece that timeline together, you can only imagine what we had up against us. People thought we were insane, but we had commitments to the world. The investors had bought from all over, from, from Russia to California to like, and these are high net worth folks. And the Sheikh's name was all over it. We couldn't afford to not deliver. So we delivered, <laughs> much to many people's chagrin at the time, because some of them didn't want us to deliver because the property values had dropped. But I learned a lot from that. And during that time I was in Dubai, in between 2008 and 2010, how did I get to the laundry part, the medical laundry part? Towards the end of 2008, my mother got diagnosed with stage four lymphoma and passed away in very shortly thereafter. I knew I couldn't, I, my plan was to leave and come back to Toronto, but my father was in terrible shape and I just couldn't leave him. So, and I was still single at the time. My brother and sister were trying to move on with their lives. My sister lives in Texas. My brother lived in Dubai, but he was running the family business and it had its own fair share of issues. So I was told, well, we have this laundry company that we were going to start many years ago. It was a project that your mother really wanted to get involved in and wanted to really, she was the driving force behind it. My father at 75, age 75 then, says to me, you know, I don't understand why you are working for somebody else when you won't help us out. And I said, I didn't realize I needed to help. What do you need help with? And he said, well, we're going to start this laundry business. No one has taken any interest we started the investment in 2006, it's 2010. Nothing has happened and I'm going to do it myself. And I said, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. <laughs> You're 75, you've lost your hearing in, a, in your ear, you've just lost your wife. I said, there's no way you're doing this. I said, if you do this, I will never speak to you again. But if you let me do this, <laughs> I said, I will not only do it, I said, and you will probably be happy as well, right? He's like, Sure. I said, okay, how bad could this be? I built five towers in the wake of the financial global meltdown. Yeah. How bad could this be? Boy, boy, did I not know what I was getting into. And this was 2010. Where you, you this, is to, this is now we're going into the discussion started 2010, but in 2011 is when I officially started working on this project. Right. So I, I, I left the shake. It was a very difficult resignation because he didn't want me to leave. He knows my family personally. And he said, I, I understand. He's like, he said, but I'm warning you. He's like, working for family, very difficult. <laughs> I said, it's to be seen. Let's see how, where, where we go. So 2011, the legacy that was left to me was a warehouse with no power, no water, and a bunch of machines that had been packed that had been delivered years ago, covered in dust. I had no clue what those machines even looked like. And uh, finally, we took a crowbar <laughs> to the crates, opened it all up, and I realized, oh my goodness, this is not just any ordinary washing machine. This is something very different. I said, what kind of machine is this? And I was told, oh, this is called a barrier washer. 
we had decided to get into the medical laundry business. I said, oh, really? I said, do we have any business intel? Anything, data, anything, nothing, zero. Where did the idea come from? I mean, that's a pretty random idea to begin with. It is. So the construction sector had taken a big hit. We had a steel fabrication business, and we saw after that that it was time to diversify. And we had a, a distant relative of my mother's who said, I want to get, let's, she, who owned a laundry shop. My mother, used, my mother and father used to visit him every week. They'd go for a cup of tea. And they said, well, what if, and he was telling them about his growth issues. And he, they said, well, what if you, what if we financed it? Would you come and be an operator for us? And he said, surely. This was probably the worst job interview I've ever seen because this man was incredibly incapable. <laughs> I mean, what he was promising and what he was currently doing is like, you know, building a rocket ship. Uh, but right now I fix bicycles. Business with family. This, this exactly. Thick sounding right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so when I got involved, I said, what have we been doing for the last few years that makes you think we are in the laundry business? He said, well, we clean carpets. I said, hang on a minute. We have invested a quarter of a million USD in equipment that has been depreciated to zero already. We have a warehouse that we're leasing that is empty. You have been storing equipment in another warehouse. Why would you do that? I'm not so sure. So we have two warehouses, equipment, and you are going out cleaning carpets? I said, why are you cleaning carpets when we have a machine that you claim is a medical washing machine? I said, where is the medical part of laundry here? You are cleaning carpets. I said, there's nothing about medical laundry in carpets, at least in my simple mind. He said, well, I haven't gotten the support and you, your family has been sort of all distracted all over the place. I said, okay, no problem. I'm involved now. I'm lead on this project. I have to deliver it. I said, and we need to get this moving in six months. I said, it is now July, 2011. All right, let's get cracking. So the first thing I did was, I said, I don't know what a medical laundry looks like. There isn't one in this region. So what's oh, so who was doing do? the medical laundry at the time? So there is no standard. There is no regulation in the United Arab Emirates. It's a young country. They're still figuring that SHIT out. So what have they done? The governments of the United Arab Emirates, whenever there's nothing that exists, rather than, you know, go out into the market and say, hey, we'll subsidize, let's get the private sector involved, they go and build it themselves. So Dubai had built its own medical laundry for its own government hospitals. But the private sector had started building their own hospitals too. And guess what? They'd been giving out laundry to just random laundry shops. And can you imagine bloodstained linen, hepatitis B infected linen, all going to random shops. No one cared. No one checked. As long as it was cheap, as long as it came back clean, they didn't care. Back then, we had a small population. Today, we have nearly 3 million people in one city. The chance of an infection, look at COVID-19. And, and, and this was part of my pitch for years before we, we even had this global pandemic. I always said, I said, we have enough people today where we have to worry about infection control. Before it was different. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how my family knew that there was a need for healthcare laundry. I cannot take credit for that. I did not see that opportunity. Remember. Here I am, my, my mind is New York, Toronto. 
I'm not focused on laundry or healthcare laundry even in the United Arab Emirates. I had no idea what the benchmark was. I don't know what the rates, what are the rates you charge for healthcare laundry? What is the cost of operation? Zero data, very hard to find. Today, we sit on data that I think people would pay a lot of money for because we have granular costs that no one can imagine on what it costs to run a healthcare laundry in the Middle East. Mind you, that cost basis is different from Canada or the US. So <laughs> when we started doing research, or I started doing research, just to make sure this business actually had legs, I realized not only was there no data or no reference point, I had to figure out how to build a laundry in six months with a shoestring budget. So I Googled, a vi- I Googled, I went to YouTube and I said, how to build a medical laundry. And hey, presto, uh, the French, you know, the French built the first washing machines if you must know, Belgians actually. And uh, the Italians built, built the first dry cleaning machine because they figured out how to turn leather into clothing. <laughs> so there was a beautiful video from Primus Laundry, Primus, well, their manufacturer, about a medical laundry in France. And I kind of caught a glimpse and I was like, okay, okay, okay. And I said, I think I kind of know how this works. Let's give it a whirl. So we started and we made maybe 7,482 mistakes <laughs> along the way. And rising, we still make mistakes. I'm not going to pretend we don't, but we make a lot less mistakes today. And it was a lot of trial and error. It really was. And what was the most uphill battle that you weren't expecting? Well, everything. For example, infrastructure. We didn't expect how difficult it is to get industrial-grade power how difficult it is to find a facility that you could lease that has a sewage line, how difficult it is to find the right amount of water pressure that you need to fill tanks that can continuously pump out the amount of water you need for industrial grade medical laundry. So that's on the infrastructure side. Beyond that, educating hospitals, why it's important to switch to us Everybody's just price conscious. Nobody gives a care. And also... So it's not regulated, right? It's not regulated. And then last but not least is we had zero connects. Zero connects in the healthcare sector. Ask me to build a building, I can make five phone calls and and, and and get a project team together. But ask me to get win business in healthcare laundry, guess what I did? I put together a terrible PowerPoint presentation, (laughs) printed it out, and just went door to door in the summer heat, knocking on every hospital door till somebody said, we'll give you a chance. And, and, and that summer heat over there is no joke. That's no joke. <laughs> that's no joke. Can you imagine? That, that, that's not Canada summer heat. No. And it, when you're covered in sweat, it doesn't reflect well when you're talking about laundry. <laughs> you need to look clean to talk about cleanliness. So, so, so um, you've been yeah. traveling back and forth from Toronto to uh, Dubai. Dubai last how many years? So I've been doing this since 20, 2013, October, even though we, st- we started our, our first contract was 2012, March 15th. 2013, October, I, I knew I had to come back to Toronto for various reasons. There were personal reasons. I had, to, I had to liquidate assets here that we had after my mother's passing. I had to tie up a lot of loose ends. Uh, my parents had tried living here for a while before my mother passed away. And on top of that, I knew that I, if I didn't start changing my, my, uh, 
the way I was thinking, I would get too comfortable in Dubai and I'd end up in the same boat that my father is in today, having lived 60 years in a country, but still not legally being allowed to call it home, right? Isn't that the beauty of Canada? I mean, yeah. the only consistency is that we're all Canadian uh, from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, this is true. This is true. But in generations to come, we won't. And that's the beauty about this place. And look at America. 400 years ago, everyone was from somewhere else. Today, most people are third, fourth, fifth, eighth yeah. generation American. And that's a beautiful thing. I didn't want to keep putting roots down in a country that may one day allow me to call myself an Emirati. I don't have time for that. I don't think I'll live that long. <laughs> but the business was very, very interesting. And that is what made me realize I had to be there for a specific number of years to get it, to get it moving. Initially, I can't tell you how many times I must have broken, I, I must have slammed my head against a wall thinking to myself, what have, I, what have I done? Like, what have I taken on here? This is just a crapshoot. I mean, day one, the dispensers broke. The dispensers that dispense all the detergent that disinfects and all of that. For 10 days, we had no idea that we, had, we were just washing without any chemicals. It was just water. And we, we were getting calls from the client. They were like, how is it that all of this stuff is still stained? We're like, it's impossible. We've been washing it and washing it and washing it, only to find out that the chemical supplier had given us a terrible dispensing pump. You know, it's all learning. It's all learning. I want to take a step back for a second. I mean, you had spent your, your previous life kind of working for someone, right? I mean, it was yeah. KPMG, or you're working with Shake, you're right. the systems integrator. Like you, you, but yet, like speaking to you, and I, and I don't know you extremely mm -hmm. well, but like I can, I can sense entrepreneurial spirit when I see it. And it's right. clear as day that you probably inherited some of your father's DNA. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> I, you talk about the crapshoot, but wasn't there something incredibly liberating about, you know, doing something for yourself? Well, yes. But I had yet to experience it at that time. And I'll, let, me, let me qualify what I mean by that. What I mean by that is I hadn't yet in my heart agreed to own it. Mm. I didn't own it yet. I felt like this is something I had promised my family I would do for them. And I was doing it out of love, but I saw it as a task, mm -hmm. you know? And then slowly I started to get emotionally attached. I started to, to feel like, I, well, I don't think it was feel. It was a, a point in my brain that, I, that said, look, you are the leader of this, this company. If you don't freaking act like you own it, this isn't going to go very far, right? So it was my first run at running a company on my own. There was no partnership. There was no check-in. There was no, hey, Blaze, can we do a quick touch point? How are things going this month? How much money did we? It was all on me. It was all on me, every single thing. My family was like, here's the money, make it happen. <laughs> and then after a point, they were like, you can't keep coming back to us asking for more and more money. <laughs> they had mis misjudged how much money it costs to build a medical laundry. They completely misjudged. They thought it was pennies. It turned out to be millions. But I went to the banks. I begged. I found a way. You know, I took on sick, crazy interest rates for these working capital loans, took on big risks. But the liberating point for me was when I finally started making decisions that, big decisions that actually started working out. And I was like, oh my God, 
said, I did that. <laughs> and then that helped me grow confidence. And I started also thinking about the decisions I'd made for, you know, when I worked for The Shake. And I was like, look, man, I made big decisions then for another guy. Surely I can make big decisions now for myself. You, talk, you talked about not owning it yet. When did that transition happen? And, uh, you know, talk to me about why that transition is so important, because I believe it is. I think that when you're doing things for others, you can only get so far. You have to yeah. do it for, for yourself. Kind of fulfillment. Yeah. And I guess initially I, I felt like I'd taken on a child that nobody wanted. And that's the honest truth. Because mm -hmm. I said, I didn't wake up one morning and said, say to myself, oh my God, when I grow up, I want to run a medical laundry. <laughs> that was not in my list of list of bucket list uh, for a long time. But I believe at some point, I can't see when, I began to love it. I don't know how. I, I just, I realized uh, maybe it was the day when I, I got like a compliment about how good our service was. Or maybe it was a day when my father came to see it and he was just stunned at how much we had done in such a short period of time. It was a series of many small things, but it began to, to put a seed was planted inside of me. And I was like, I need to be proud of this. Mm -hmm. I can't treat it like it's a stepchild. It's a stepchild that I've learned to love. <laughs> and now I, I can't see myself ever not loving it. So I guess that was the journey. And I think that's why it's different for me. You see, a lot of people start businesses because it's their own idea. Like people wake up one morning, they're like, I'm going to build a service provider that does this and that. It was their idea from the get-go. For me, it wasn't. And so I had to learn to love it at some point along the way. And I did. I got lucky. Because a lot of people don't. They're like, I'm doing this for you, but I really hate this business. <laughs> mm -hmm. But now I, I love it. I own it. And I'm proud of it. But the most important part for me is, you know, I always tell people, they're like, people come to me and they say, oh, my goodness, Blaze, like, how, when you started this company, how many, how many tons were you doing? I was like, wow, not even 180 kgs a day. Forget about tonnage. <laughs> 180 kgs a day I thought was a big deal. Today we do 10, 11, 10 tons a day on average. On average, that's 22,000 pounds. That is a lot of laundry and growing, right? So that journey was paved <laughs> with struggle, <laughs> pain, humility, <laughs> humiliation, all those things together. How much of that was learned behavior versus how much of that was, was your DNA? Yeah, good question. So one thing my parents have always taught me, not because they taught it to me through a lesson, it's through the way they lived their life, is humility. No matter how poor or how rich, my father has always been the same. My mother has always been the same. They never had airs and graces. They never had their noses turned up. Even when our family businesses started doing well, they were still, in my mind, they were the common people. We were still, we, and we still live like that. We still think like that, you know? People are people. I mean, nothing runs. This world doesn't run without people. Yeah. It, it, that comes first always, right? Humility is layered so deeply with self-awareness. And uh, it sounds like your parents were incredibly self-aware. Yeah. I believe that's a genetic thing. So, you know, I err on the 80% nature. I always ask some people to give me a number. What do you, what do you really think? Yeah. Uh, between nature and nurture. Like what, what percentage makes up a human? Oh, wow. That's a good one. 
between nature and nurture, I think, well, I think, na- I think nurture is about, is the majority. Okay, let's say 75%. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. exactly inverse of what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I don't think I could have learned this alone. I learned it from watching how people conducted themselves. I think the, the, the nature part is it feels right. That's nature. When it feels right, it's nature to me. Mm-hmm. But when you're learning from external influence, that's nurture for me. So I'm like, okay, my, this is how mom and dad behave and live their lives. And I'm like, and it feels right. But there are things my dad also does that I'm like, this is terrible behavior and it feels wrong. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I think we, we all have to figure out how much of nature and how much of nurture we want to. I think it's a move... It's something we're always balancing every day of our lives. Yeah. Every day of our lives. Well, Blaze, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs out there that uh, could probably see a lot of themselves in your story. You know, being a, you know, an outsider. I mean, even an outsider in, in your in your own country. I mean, if that's right. that's a pretty extreme example. What are the three kind of key lessons or pieces of advice you can give to young people that you've kind of learned along the way, probably the hard way? Yeah. <laughs> that's usually where the lessons come that you can leave uh, you know, people listening today with. Because you, know, you have such an incredibly interesting story, an immigrant, immigrant, immigrant story. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, <laughs> professional, you're, you're a professional immigrant. <laughs> I'm a professional immigrant. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even a Canadian citizen yet, if you must know. Yeah. I've yet to become one. Yeah. Well, the first one I think is your journey to entrepreneurship will be a lonely one at times. There will be people who will walk away from you, people who will stop believing in you. And at some point, you'll actually realize that the people you thought were your biggest supporters and closest to you are your biggest critics. And they're not necessarily going to say things that are nice and mollycoddle you and help. And, be, and some, a, lot of, a lot of criticism is complete garbage and, help and, and not very helpful even. But you have to remember that your abilities are defined by you. Don't let anybody else define them for you. If you believe it, you can do it, but you got to believe it. And you really, really got to believe that you're capable of it. So that's the first part is don't think that there's going to be a crowd of supporters with you all the way through this journey. No. And a lot of people, it's, it's by accident, I think. I think that a lot of people don't love other people being excellent because it makes them lesser than. Yeah. It's kind of human nature to draw everyone back to the average. People don't like extraordinary. It reminds them that that they're not. And that's a hard thing for people to stomach. Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, I I see it as inspirational. You know, when I hear about it, I'm like, it's so great. How do I learn from that? Right. The other thing is, you know, the second part of it is don't forget that every business Every business's success, no matter how good the idea is, it comes from the work of not just one person. There are many people who are involved. Don't forget them. You know, it's important. But what happened to the self-made man? Who, my father? (laughs) (laughs) He's different. (laughs) Yeah, he's different. I I can't even say I'm a self-made man because he he funded this this venture. But no one funded his venture. He funded it himself. And I wish I could say that. I've yet to fund something out of my own money. So I owe him. Yeah. I always will. But when I say don't forget, I'm talking about the people who work with you. 
I'm yeah. talking about those, those people who work for you. They're key to the success. And I think a lot of people forget as they, their businesses get so successful, you know what else happens? Their ego grows. <laughs> and that ego gets so big, there's no, one, there's no space for anyone else in the room. You know, and that's, that's kind of, it's important you don't forget. Don't forget that your success is built on you leading, but other people following. And those following are as critical. And last but not least, one of the things that I think is nature, <laughs> to your point, is grace. Find grace. Find elegance in the way you conduct yourself in business. Lead with grace, close with grace. And that is what will define your success for every single transaction you do in the business world. People will gravitate towards you because it is pleasant to do business with you. People will run away from you if you think being a shark and you know, taking them for everything they're worth. No, you're building a long-term relationship. 100%. And if you want them to come back, Treat them with the respect and a little bit of love. You know what? Businesses need to have an emotional side. It's not just paper and numbers. I totally agree. I mean, one of my mentors has always told me that you have your entire career to build a good reputation. Yeah. You have an instant in time to lose it. Exactly. Uh, I completely agree with that. You have to get like, and, and if it's a business that you're building from love, yeah, and you love, I think it'll be ultimately more successful and more sustainable. Yeah. I really do. I think, that it's, I think it's easy to make money one time the wrong way. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to build a sustainably good long-term business that isn't built on foundation of what you call grace. I might call ethics and morals. Right. But yeah, I lo- love that. So let's, let, let's leave it there, Blaze. That was perfect. Blaze, thank you so much for, uh, for participating. Uh, that was a, a really interesting story. I loved hearing about your journey. Um, thank for you. those who, who may want to follow along on your journey, uh, you know, what's the best way that they can do that? Can they follow you on LinkedIn? What's the... Yeah, I do apologize. I'm terrible on so, like, I don't post many updates about anything. But yes, I'm always contactable, reachable on LinkedIn. And I always respond. So that's the best. I am planning a PR something in the near future so people can can keep track of what we're doing and where we're going. But yeah, LinkedIn is the best. Well, thanks again, Blaze, and uh, until next time. And we're looking forward to meeting in person at some point soon. Likewise. Thank you, Elon. Take care. Have a good day. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.